lives of our community. Lord, we love how you've never given up on us, how you keep coming again and again with your love. And Lord, we love your ability to set captives free, your ability to deliver the oppressed. And so, Lord, we just honor you. We know that just in your presence, hearts are set free, that just in your presence, people are delivered. And so, Lord, we recognize your presence among us this morning. We thank you for visiting us again. We just love the way that you love to be with us. And, Lord, you can't help but be yourself when you're among your people and you're a deliverer. So we welcome your work among us today. Lord, we pray that you would be with us as we come to your word. In it, you have spoken to us most clearly about who you are about how you've worked in the world, about our salvation and about who we are. Lord, we need spiritual eyes and spiritual ears and open hearts to understand and apply what you want to do through your word today. So Lord, we just say, have your way. We are your people. You are our king. Have your way. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. If you don't know me, my name is Joel Repic. I'm lead pastor here at Crestmont. If you're visiting with us, we're especially glad that you're here with us, that you've decided to be with us this morning, and I hope we get the chance to know you better. Uh, we're going to be in two portions of scripture this morning, so and you'll forgive me, you can hear my voice is struggling a little bit this morning. I've been fighting a cold, uh, so we'll see how it holds up. But we're going to be in Matthew chapter 2 and in Hosea 11. <clears throat> um, those passages will also be on the screen, uh, but you can get there in your Bibles or on your phones as well if you want to do that. Um, but I'm just glad to be before you this morning in the Word of God with you all. Uh, before we approach the Word, whoops, before we approach the Word, uh, I want to make one other announcement as we look towards the new year in 2018. Um, this year, thank you, this year we'll be doing something different. Uh, some of you have participated in this, but we haven't done it church-wide yet. Uh, we're going to be doing a 21-day fast at the head of the new year. Now, I realize for some of you that may sound crazy. And you may think, what are you all talking about, a 21-day fast? Well, fasting is a practice that has been around for centuries in Jewish and Christian communities and I want to be very clear, fasting is not a way to control or manipulate God. He can't be controlled or manipulated. And fasting is not a way to, you know, earn points with God. If your motivation in fasting is guilt-ridden, then you're missing the point entirely of the practice of fasting. Um, we fast when we want God more than we want anything else. And it's just an expression of our hunger for the Lord. Sometimes we don't satisfy our earthly hunger so that we can express our hunger to the Lord. Um, you know, I've, I never thought, there was a time in my Christian life, I never thought I'd be standing in front of you saying that fasting was a joy in my Christian walk. Um, but I did this 21-day fast last year, and I was surprised how through the rest of my year I actually missed the time of this fast. Um, because it was just such precious time with the Lord. It was just so good to be with him, you know, for, for those three weeks. So here's what we've done. First of all, I want to say this. 
you are free to participate. You are invited to participate. But if you choose not to or you can't, it is okay. All right? This is a no-guilt environment surrounding this fast. That being said, I do want to challenge you to maybe do something that you've never done before or maybe do again something that you've done in the past and to join us for these 21 days of prayer. So here's what we've done. Uh, it's on the poster behind me, but we've put out at the Welcome Center fasting guides, all right? It's four pages of information, like a biblical basis for fasting with some scripture verses, if you're interested in looking in that. But one thing that is listed there are a number of different ways that you can participate in this fast. On one end of the spectrum is what we would call a, a true fast when you think of fasting, a juice fast. Um, believe it or not, it is possible to go 21 days without food. That's what I participated in last year. And your body actually, if you're healthy, your body will actually respond to that pretty well. We've given some uh, like instructions out there, but I want to say this. If you have physical issues or you're under the care of a doctor, you ought to talk to your doctor before you participate in a fast like this. It may not be physically possible for you to participate in this. And I also want to say, too, I realize that, you know, some there's in a crowd this size, it's not um, unusual that there would be someone who has struggled, you know, with eating disorders in the past, and this whole idea may be triggering to you. And maybe that's not, th this isn't the best thing, you know, for you to participate in. But that's one end of the spectrum. Then we've laid out a number of different ways that you can fast, just cutting out certain foods, fasting a meal, a day. There's different ways you can do it. And kind of on the other end of the spectrum is fasting from social media for 21 days, which may be harder for some of you than fasting food <laughs> for 21 days. You know who you are. All right. <laughs> um, so what, what we wanted to do is we wanted to give you a number of options, of ways that you can participate for these 21 days. And you might even combine some of those options, but I do want to challenge you to join us. During those 21 days, there's a schedule on the fasting guide of different times that we'll be getting together for prayer. You'll be hearing those announced um, as we get closer. And I'm excited. Our friends at Christ's Kingdom Ministry Center will also be fasting during this period of time with us. So we're coming together with them at different points throughout the fast as well. There'll be a night of worship with them towards the end of the fast, and then on, I believe it's the 28th, yeah, January 28th, that's a Sunday, we'll have a time of prayer and worship here in the prayer room, and that's that last night of the fast. Um, you might pick something during the fast to focus on, you know, an area of prayer, a place you want to see breakthrough. I can tell you on my part, I think I've already heard the Lord on this for my time during the fast. I'm just going to be worshiping. Um, I plan to spend a lot of time just in the Psalms, you know, for these 21 days. I'm not really asking the Lord very much, uh, but just to let him work uh, while I worship. So, um, so this may be different for you. It may be a challenge, but I want to hold that out to you and invite you into it. We printed off, I think, about 50 fasting guides, so they're out there at the Welcome Center if you want to grab one on your way out. All right, as we approach the text this morning, uh, we are going to continue to look <clears throat> at these connections between the story of Jesus' birth and the Old Testament prophecies. We've been doing this for the last couple weeks. We've called this series Advent Across the Ages. Um, the birth of Jesus, the coming of the Messiah, the anointed one that God was going to send to save us from our sins, uh, had been foretold, prophesied uh, hundreds of years before he was born through people that God chose and he spoke through by his Holy Spirit. So we're looking at some of these prophetic connections 
And we're going to begin today in Matthew 2 uh, by looking at one of those connections. Now, just to remind you, I had said some of this a couple weeks ago, but just to remind you where we're at in the story in the book of Matthew, as we look at the verses that we're going to be looking at today, here's what has happened. Jesus has been born, as was promised. He was born in Bethlehem. If you remember, uh, Mary and Joseph ended up in Bethlehem because Caesar Augustus, uh, who was the king of the empire, the Roman Empire at that time, had decreed that the census should be taken. So Joseph had to go to his hometown to be registered there. So they end up, they end up in Bethlehem, and they give birth to the baby boy Jesus there. And they end up living there for a little bit of time. But scripture tells us that there were these, uh, you know, traditionally we call them wise men. In the scripture we're reading today, they're called magi. Basically, they were astrologers, people who studied the stars, and they had perceived that a new star had appeared in the sky, and they thought this to mean that there was a new king in Israel. So they traveled to Jerusalem, and when they got to the holy city, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, when they got to the holy city, uh, they talked to a king there who had been given some authority by the Roman Empire. His name was Herod. And Herod did not like this thought that there was another king that had been born in the land and that people were seeking him out to honor him. And so he called the, uh, you know, the scribes, the people who studied scripture in the royal court, he called them forward and said, where is this child supposed to be born? They said, Bethlehem. And so he tells these magi, these wise men, he says, go to Bethlehem, see the child and his family, but if you find him, come back and tell me so that I can come and honor him as well. And of course, he was tricking them because he wanted them to report back to him so that he would know where the child was so that he could kill the child and his family. And like we said two weeks ago, these wise men, these magi are warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, so they don't. And Herod ends up taking his fury out on the town of Bethlehem by killing uh, the baby boys there. But before that happens, Joseph is warned in a dream that he should take Mary and the child and they should flee. And these are the few verses that we're going to read this morning, Matthew 2, beginning in verse 13. We're just going to read a few verses, so I'm not going to have you stand. So when they had gone, talking about the Magi, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Out of Egypt I called my son. He's quoting from the prophet Hosea in this passage, and that's why we're going to turn to Hosea chapter 11. It's really amazing when you consider the story of Jesus' birth, because at this point in the story, there is a king who is trying to kill him. Jesus and his family have become oppressed, even at a young age, and they flee to Egypt. And this is a big deal. You know, travel in Jesus' day was dangerous for anyone. We're so used to just like hopping into our cars and driving to the next place. 
but especially a poor family like Jesus was born into. Travel would have been lonely and dangerous, at least 80 miles to the Egyptian border. Actually, I have a map uh, you can see, I believe, somewhere. There it is. They would have traveled through the desert at least 80 miles to the Egyptian border, and then we only exactly know where they went in Egypt. There were a couple of cities there where there were large Jewish populations, so maybe they went there to live for a time, but there's no question this would have been dangerous and hard. They're fleeing for their lives, and this means that Jesus, in the earliest days of his life, Jesus is in a poor family, and he's a refugee. The identification with human suffering that Jesus embraces, because remember, he's 100% God, 100% man. This is God in human flesh. But, but the way God designed this, that he would experience some of the worst parts of human suffering at such a young age, it really is startling. Now, Matthew quotes Hosea, this prophet, because he's telling us, he's giving us a clue that this whole business about fleeing to Egypt for safety and then at a later date, coming out of Egypt back to the land of Israel when it's safe again should cause us to remember how God has worked in the past. He's hoping that we make the connection between what's happening in Jesus' life and what happened with the people of Israel in the Old Testament. He's saying you might notice a pattern here. You might notice that God has done something similar like this before, and so he quotes Hosea 11, verse 1, and I think it's so that we go back to Hosea and we read this passage of Hosea, and as Hosea himself is recalling how God has worked with his people. Now, Hosea is a prophet in 8th, 8th century Israel. Uh, you've heard us say in this series that at some point in the Old Testament nation of Israel, there was a civil war, and it divided the country into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Hosea lived and prophesied in the northern kingdom not long before God allowed foreign nations to overtake the northern kingdom of Israel because of their sin. And so, is, so Hosea is prophesying about Israel's disobedience, but a beautiful feature of Hosea's prophecy is you just hear the heart and the compassion of God throughout the entire book. Hosea is a great book to read in the Old Testament. If you haven't read it, I encourage you to read it. As a matter of fact, one time I went with one of my friends to Belle Glade, Florida, a place that we have some ministry connection with, and uh, we went down for a few days of prayer and ministry, and we'd wake up in the morning, and we would just read out loud. We'd take turns, chapter after chapter, the whole book of Hosea back and forth to each other, and the repentance that God worked in our heart just in that week, because you can't help but hear the heart and the compassion of God as he's reaching out to his sinful people. And so Hosea is prophesying into this situation. So here's what it says in Hosea 11.1. 1. This is the verse that Matthew quotes. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Hosea is reminding the sinful, disobedient people of Israel how God has worked with them over the centuries and centuries of their history, he reminds them that it was God who called them just out of his love. And listen, it was just God's sovereign choice that he chose Israel. There was nothing spectacular about Israel. There was nothing powerful about Israel that would, God, that would draw God's attention. As a matter of fact, when God called Israel, Israel was just one family, right? Abraham and his family. This wasn't any spectacular group of people. And God said, I'm choosing you, Abraham, 
and the nation that's going to come from you, and I'm going to work with you in a special way to show the world who I am and how I work in the world. So it was just out of his love, it was just out of his grace that he picked this family, that he picked Israel, and then he kept them all of these years. And Hosea is reminding them that they were called out of Egypt. If you remember the story, you can read about it in the book of Genesis. But eventually, you know, Abraham had Isaac, Isaac had, had Jacob, and eventually Jacob and his sons end up in Egypt. It's a crazy story. You can read it in the book of Genesis. End up in Egypt because there's a famine, and God used Joseph, who is Abraham's great-grandson, used Joseph in this amazing way to save the Egyptian empire from destruction during this time of famine. They saved food so that they could keep eating during the time of the famine. So their families end up in Egypt. There they live, they put down roots, they begin multiplying. Eventually there are many, after hundreds of years, there are many and many and many descendants of Israel living in Egypt. And of course, eventually Pharaoh, king of Egypt, forgets about the history that he had with this family, they become a threat, so he begins to enslave them. You can read about this in the book of Exodus. And so they are enslaved in the worst kind of way, back-breaking labor, no rights, uh, no respect at all, no ability to form or plan for their own future at all. Even their kids are getting killed by the Egyptian empire. But the whole time, God heard the cries of his people. And he raised up a man named Moses and his brother and sister Aaron and Miriam who led Israel out of captivity, out of slavery. If you remember the story, God showed up in mighty displays of power to show Pharaoh who was really king. And he led his people into the desert, this same desert that Mary and Joseph are traveling through with their baby boy, leads them into the desert and there he appears to them. If you remember the story, by day, a pillar of cloud at night, a pillar of fire. He appears to them and speaks to them to the law. And this is a really important thing to remember. Listen, that when Israel was first getting to know their God, and there was a time they didn't know much about him. They didn't have Bibles. When they were getting to know their God, one of the first things they learned about him was that he was a deliverer. One of the first things they came to understand about God was that he was the one who set the oppressed free. They were slaves, and this God who was revealing himself in cloud and fire was their liberator. So this is the first thing, really one of the first things that they got to know about. They might not have known a lot about God, but they knew this, that they had been slaves, and they were slaves no longer, because Yahweh, the one true God, had come to their rescue. So Hosea is recalling all of this. It was out of God's love that he called his people out of slavery, out of Egypt. I have called my son. But then look in verse 2 in Hosea 11, because here the prophet begins to lament the sin of the people. He says, but the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals, and they burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk taking them by the arms, but they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them, I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek, and I bent down to feed them. Will they not return to Egypt, and will not Assyria rule over them because they refuse to repent? A sword will flash in their cities. It will devour their false prophets and put an end to their plans. My people are determined to turn from me, 
Even though they call me God most high, I will by no means exalt them. So here's what happened. God led his people out of slavery into a land that he promised them. But when they got there, as the years passed, and as the memory of their liberator God got dimmer and dimmer, they became slaves of a different kind. Because as it turns out, we aren't just enslaved by the things that are external to us. We're not just enslaved by our circumstances or by people who mistreat us or by the situations that oppress us, the circumstances that hold us down. As it turns out, we are also oppressed by an enemy within, and it's called the human heart. See, all of us were born with this, a heart that is deceitful and wicked, that believes bondage is freedom, and freedom is bondage, that is easily confused and buys into deceptions. And even though God had freed his people, they went into the land of their freedom, and there they began to worship the false gods of their neighbors, and they became slaves to their own sin. They became slaves to those gods, even though God had freed them. Now, this is so true of us today. The real enemy is within. We may at times be oppressed from without, but we all know the oppression of the human heart within. And so Hosea says, time is up. You're going to get conquered by a neighboring nation. They're going to come in, and they're going to take, I can't let this go on anymore. You're going to experience the consequences of this sin. But then Hosea prophesies hope. Even though God is going to allow a nation to overtake them and lead them back into captivity, he will once again gather them from captivity. He will be deliverer again. I hope you see just the steadfastness of God's character in this. What he's telling his people is, I led you out of slavery. Now you're going to have to go back into slavery because you're being disobedient. But I can't help myself. I'm going to be liberator again, deliverer again. I'm going to lead you back out. I'm going to take you back out again because I can't help but relate to you as a deliverer. This is who I am. And even your captivity, even your captivity is going to be used for your spiritual freedom. I'm your deliverer. So look at his compassion in verse 8, Hosea 11:8. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zeboim? Those are two cities. They're on the same plane that Sodom and Gomorrah were on. And he's saying, I can't treat you how, I, how those cities were treated. I can't utterly destroy you. You are my people. You're my own. So he says, my heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. Hey, do you hear this? I love Hosea's language. But listen, don't tell me God don't, doesn't have feelings. We've created these theological constructs that make God this feelingless being. Do you hear the emotion of God in this passage? My compassion is aroused within me. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I devastate Ephraim again, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One among you. I will not come against their cities. They will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. They will come from Egypt, trembling like sparrows, from Assyria, fluttering like doves. 
He's saying you're going into captivity, but there's a time when the one true God, like a lion, is going to roar. And his children are going to hear the roar, and they're going to come out of captivity back home to where they belong. Now, we've been saying all through this series that in many of these prophetic passages, there's a nearer fulfillment of the prophecy and a further fulfillment. And that is the case in this portion of Hosea 2. The nearer fulfillment is that this captivity isn't going to last forever. And in fact, it didn't. God did bring his own people back to the promised land. But the further fulfillment is this. The prophet is saying a time is coming when the Lion of Judah is going to roar and all of his people from all over the earth are going to come trembling out of their captivity to come home into the love of God where they belong. Because God is deliverer. How is this worldwide deliverance going to happen? It's going to happen through the sent one, through the anointed one, Jesus the Christ. We were those captives, and when the lion roared, we came home. See, if you're in Jesus, it's just because the lion roared and you came home. You came trembling out of your captivity and came home to the love of God. So back to Matthew. Matthew is telling us to recognize the pattern of God, the character of God, the pattern of God, how he works, because he's doing it again in Jesus' young life. God has acted as deliverer in the past. And true to his character, Matthew is saying, he's going to deliver again. He's going to deliver the baby boy Jesus from the clutches of Herod. He's going to deliver Mary. He's going to deliver Joseph. He's going to bring him back. The plan of God is going to unfold. And through this sent one, this chosen one, Jesus the Christ, the deliverance of the whole world will happen as well. And in fact, Jesus said, who is God, the image of the invisible God, if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Jesus said at the beginning of his ministry one day when he was in a worship gathering like this, when he was in the synagogue and the scroll of the, Isaiah, and the, scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, another prophet prophesying not far from the time of Hosea. Jesus reads this prophecy and says it applies to him. He says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, and to set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus is saying, I am God in the flesh. I am that delivering God, and I am now among you, so get ready for some chains to break. Get ready for some chains to fall because the deliverer is in your midst. All right, our four questions. Out of all of this, so who is God? Well, I think we've already made the point that God is deliverer, that he is liberator. But I want to make another point. It may cause you to stretch your thinking for a minute. So try to track with me just a little bit of a theological reminder of what we believe by the testimony of Scripture. We believe that Scripture teaches there is one God in three persons, right? We call that theological concept the Trinity. One God in three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All are to be equally worshipped. All are equally God, but there's only one God in three persons. It's a mystery, right? Well, the mystery of what we're celebrating at Christmas is that the second person of the Trinity, the Son, took on human flesh. And he came and he lived among us. He came 
to live this life that we all live. This is what the second person of the Trinity did. And in the mystery of God being one, but in three persons, here's what happened. Jesus, who's 100% God, lives his earthly life in a human body, also relating to God the Father and God the Son. I mean, the Spirit, okay? So this is why we can talk about Jesus, who is God himself, being filled with the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, right? Because he is walking as fully God and fully man, right? And this is why Jesus, who's fully God, prays to his Father, the first person of the Trinity. He relates to his Father during his time on earth. The second member of the Trinity relates to the first member of the Trinity in prayer, And so here is what happened for Jesus. It is true that God is deliverer, but it's also true that in Jesus, Jesus experienced deliverance. God delivered, but Jesus was delivered. See, he was delivered by his father. He went through the very human experience of experiencing the deliverance of his father. See, he experienced deliverance as a child here. He experienced his father delivering him, sending this angel to warn Joseph. All of that is God acting as deliverer on Jesus' behalf. And again and again and again in Jesus' life, he experienced the power of his father as deliverer. And unlike Israel, who got delivered from Egypt and went into the promised land and became slaves of a different kind, Jesus stayed free his whole life. He stayed free his whole life. He just, every time something tried to take him captive, he just experienced the deliverance of his God. Herod tries to take him captive. He just experiences the deliverance of his father. Sin tries to take him captive. Remember, he got tempted in every way, like we've been tempted, except without sin. Sin tries to take him captive. He just experiences the deliverance of his father. Satan tries to come at him. He just experiences the deliverance of his father. People's opinions, their misunderstood conceptions of him, all of that comes against him. He just experiences the deliverance of his father. He just walked on the earth in the deliverance of his father. And then when the unthinkable happened, when he went to the cross and our great enemy, death, tried to take him captive, put him in the ground, as it turns out, it only put him in the ground for three days because even that could not keep him captive. Whatever was thrown at him, death, Satan, whatever it was, sin, people's opinions, as it turned out, he stayed free because he received the deliverance of his father. Amen? I like this raspy voice I'm preaching with today. You like it? I need to... Be sick more often. That's not true. (laughs) So not only is God deliverer in Jesus, he experienced the deliverance of God. What a mystery that he went through that. Now, why does that matter for us? Well, let me tell you a story. Chelsea and I, when we first got married, we had no money. And we really couldn't afford a honeymoon. And so a friend of my dad's, I think it was a coworker of his, said, we have a condo at Seven Springs Ski Resort. We got married in January. Our anniversary is coming up. Our 11th year anniversary is coming up. <clears throat> and and uh, he, said, he said, he told my dad, he said, you guys can have, you know, Joel and Chelsea can have the, the condo for free. 
Now, they own this really nice place. You know, it's Seven Springs. And apparently when you own a place like that, you get a certain amount of privileges, right? There's a parking spot that you get to use. You get discounts on skiing. You get discounts in the stores. There's just these little perks, you know, that come with buying a place like that at a resort. Well, here's what happened. The people who owned the condo were the ones with the privileges, right? But we got to experience all of the privileges because they put us on this list that said for the time Joel and Chelsea stay there, they get all of the privileges that we would normally get. They're, they get to experience everything we get. Now, I didn't buy the condo. As a matter of fact, we didn't pay a cent. I, we didn't even pay for the weekend, right? We didn't buy the condo. We didn't pay a cent. But for that weekend, we got to experience all of the privileges because they had paid for those privileges, and we got put on the list. Now, here's the thing. Not long after we were there, I made a mistake. We were there like 20 minutes, all right? And, and listen, great start to the honeymoon. We were there like 20 minutes, and, and I, uh, I, they had given us the key, you know? And we had dinner reservations at this fancy restaurant. There was a dress code. So I, I, you know, I had my tie on. I had a jacket on. And we're getting ready. It was a warm January, so it's pouring down rain. The next day, there was a beautiful snow. It was really nice. But, but that night, it was pouring down this cold, you know, winter rain. And we were a little late for the dinner reservation, so we get into the condo. We set down our stuff, um, and we change our clothes, and we go out the door. And as soon as we go out the door, I realize I locked that door behind me, and I left that one key that we had in there. You were talking about patterns of how God works in the Old Testament. Chelsea was seeing a pattern of how Joel works in the marriage. All right. <laughs> so, so listen. So, <laughs> right. So, I left. I left this key in there. So I made a mistake. I messed up. Right, big time. I mean, this was like embarrassing. These people are giving this to us. But as it turns out, the privileges are so great. When you're on that list and you have those privileges, the privileges are so great that even your mistake won't get you off the list. You know, they didn't just say, oh, you're locked out of the condo. You know, for the rest of the time, you messed up, you screwed up, you know, so you got to go. Here's what happened. I ran, I, I dropped Chelsea off at the restaurant, then I had to find the office. So it was a little messy. I got soaked. It's pouring down rain. I just remember how wet I was. But I find the desk that I'm supposed to be at, and guess what they did? They pulled out this binder. They go to the list. Our names are on the list. They said, we will call one of our maintenance men who's on call right now for these kinds of things. Can you imagine? This is like major privilege, right? Like I'm messing up this other guy's weekend with my privilege, right? <laughs> and, and, and they call him, and he opens up the place for us just like that. See, this is why it matters, not only that God is deliverer, but that Jesus experienced deliverance perfectly from his Father. Because here's what Jesus does for us, friends. You get on the list with him, you get to experience all of the privileges that the Father gives to the Son. See, if you don't believe me, then why is it that Jesus says, ask for whatever you wish in my name, and I will do it for you? What's he saying? He's saying, you're on the list, friends. You're on the list. You've received my salvation because of the cross. You're on the list. And when it comes to prayer, 
What the son wants, the son gets from the father. And he's saying, so that means you're on the list. You can come to the father anytime and ask for whatever you want in my name, and I'm going to give it to you because you're on the list. Well, I sinned last week. I messed up. I locked the key in. You're still on the list. So you still get all of the privileges. But I don't know if I can live up to these privileges. None of us live up to the privileges. It's all grace. Your name is on the list. So you get what the son gets. You see? Now, here's what the son got. He got deliverance at every turn from his father. Every time something tried to oppress him. Every time something set itself against him. He experienced deliverance from his father. And even when it looked like that wasn't happening, the cross is one of those moments, even when it looked like it was all falling apart, as it turns out, the deliverance of God was still at work. And all of the deliverance that the son gets is what we get too. So if that's who God is, then who am I? Well, if God is deliverer and if Jesus got delivered, then very simply it means that I am free. I am free if I'm in Jesus. Now listen, if you aren't in Christ, this is the what is God saying to me question. If you aren't in Christ, if you haven't received his salvation, then you do need to know this, that you are a slave. Listen, there's no shame in it. This shame has to do with thinking you're exceptionally bad. We were all equally enslaved in our sin, equally enslaved to the devil. There's no shame in it. You know, Harriet Tubman, the famed abolitionist and conductor of the Underground Railroad, led all these slaves to freedom. One of her most famous quotes, she said, I freed a thousand slaves. I could have freed a thousand more if only they knew they were slaves. See, this is what the devil loves to do before we come to Jesus, is convince slaves that they're actually free. Is to make slaves blind to their own slavery so they can't see. Can't you imagine Harriet Tubman having an open moment with a slave and saying, we got to go now. You got to pick up your stuff. We got to go now. They're looking for us. And the person not seeing the problem, you know, so lost in that place of slavery, not able to see another future. But listen, if you're in Jesus today, you're here because at some point the Holy Spirit came and convinced you of your slavery. The Holy Spirit came and convinced you that you were a slave, and he said, I want to free you, and I want to free you today. See, if you're here and you're a slave, you don't got to stay in that place because our God is a deliverer, and he's able to snap chains. He's able to free you because this is who he is. If you need a liberator, you have one in the one true God. Amen? Amen. But listen, this is how the devil works. If you didn't think you were a slave when you were a slave, then once he frees you, he loves to convince you that you are a slave, even though you've been freed. See how he works? See, if I'm in Jesus, this is what it means. I have it on the screen behind me. If I'm in Jesus, the degree to which I believe I'm free will be the degree to which I don't live like a slave. You see, if I'm living like a slave, it shows they has not yet dawned on me the extent of my freedom. I, I think I'm a slave when I'm no longer one. You know, this was a main goal of the leaders of the civil rights movement after slavery was to convince people 
that the Constitution of the United States guaranteed them their absolute freedom, no matter the color of their skin, because they knew that once people who think they were slaves realize that they are no longer slaves, they'll start acting not like slaves, but like free people. You'll start to sit wherever you want on the bus, right? Because that's what free people do, right? You'll start using whatever, whatever facility, whatever you'll sit at whatever lunch counter you want to sit at because that's what free people do. You'll start going for whatever jobs are available because that's what free people do. And this is why again and again and again, the leaders of the civil rights movement were telling people, you're not slaves anymore. That went away a long time ago. You're free. So start living out of the freedom. See, here's this thing about slavery and freedom. This is just the truth that if you, if you think you're a slave, it doesn't matter how free you are, you'll act like a slave. <laughs> Jesus could have given you all the freedom in the world, you'll still live like a slave. You know, But if you know that you're free, it doesn't matter how people, the devil, circumstances try to enslave you. You will remain free because you believe it in the deepest place of your heart. See, this is what God wants to do in us, friends, by his spirit, if you're in Jesus today, is to convince you of your freedom. God is deliverer, and Jesus was delivered so that you would have all the privileges of a free man, of a free woman. So what are we going to do about it? Very simply, you're going to live like a free man. You're going to live like a free woman. I understand the battle that can go in in our minds on this issue. If the rest of the worship team could come forward, the battle that goes in our minds on this issue, it's like, well, you don't understand my temper, Pastor. You don't understand how I lose my temper. Hear the final word of the Lord on your temper. Out of Egypt, I called my son. <laughs> I led him with love out of captivity so that you could have all of his privileges, so that you didn't have to live in captivity, but you could live in freedom. You know, well, pastor, you don't understand my job, the way my boss talks to me, the way he just enslaves me. You know, the way... The Crestmont staff says amen here is the wrong place to say amen. You just don't understand. You just don't understand my boss. You don't understand the way that he comes after me. Hear the word of the Lord on this. Out of Egypt, I called my son. You're free. Well, you don't understand. I'm caught in this, in this marriage. You know, in my, I want to follow the Lord, and my spouse doesn't. I feel trapped. We're not in the same place. Hear this. Even in the place where you feel like that relationship is confining you, out of Egypt, I've called my son. You're free. You're free. Well, pastor, you don't understand. I've committed the same sin a hundred times over and over and over again. Well, listen, out of Egypt, I called my son. You're free. Well, you don't understand my addiction. You don't understand the way this stuff comes at me. You know what? Maybe I don't. But here's what I do know. In the place where you're willing to surrender again and again and again to your deliverer God, this word will be spoken in the place of your addiction out of Egypt. I have called my son. See? Doesn't matter. Well, you don't know what I looked at last night on the computer. Right before I came to church, you don't know what I was looking at on my phone. 
Hear this in that place of shame. Out of Egypt, I've called my son. Not in captivity anymore. I have to live like a slave. See, none of this is dependent on your behavior. I locked the stinking key into the condo. I still had all of the privileges because it just has to do with my name being on that list. If you're in Jesus, your name is on the list. You don't understand, Pastor, my fear, the way I worry about things, and then I feel guilty about my fear, and I get stuck in this thing. You know, I can't get out of it. Hear this, out of Egypt, I called my son. Out of Egypt, I called my son, and all of the deliverance that Jesus experienced is yours now too. But that old way of life, it calls to me. I hear it calling to me again and again and again. Out of Egypt, I called my son, but I've come into church stoned. I've come into church drunk. Out of Egypt, I called my son. See, I don't care what you throw at me. When I'm a free person, the devil will love to throw your sin back at you. But when you're a free person, you don't have to take it because it's settled. God is deliverer. Jesus has freed you. End of story. No matter what's going on. But pastor, I got to lose weight. There's going to be Christmas cookies. Out of Egypt, I called my son. You know? Doesn't matter what it is. You're free. Let me tell you something. If we start living like free women, like free men, let me tell you something. We will liberate other people. We will liberate other people. We start living free. A lot of people, they come into religion and they just take on a different kind of slavery. You know, they come into religion, they just take on different, they change, you know, their one addiction really just for religious like behavior. So I want to tell you, out of Egypt, he has called his son. This is settled. You're delivered, you're free. Nothing is more appealing to a world in bondage than people who know that they're free. And they live like it. See, the civil rights movement gained steam because some people, as Rosa Parks, dared to live like a free person. Decided to sit where she was going to sit. And before you knew it, a whole city was boycotting those buses. Because they knew that they were free. It just takes one person, friends, starting to live like a free man, a free woman of God. It's going to liberate people around you.